Hi everyone, I'm Benji and this is the Daily Dose Podcast. In today's hour, I have Susan McCulloch, a registered psychologist of more than 40 years. Her practice focuses on post-traumatic stress disorder, early childhood abuse, post-accident trauma, and much more. She calls herself a brain-wise therapist, educating her clients on basic brain function so they can better understand their behavior and how to change it. In this hour, we touch on a variety of subjects, like how I ended up in the chair across from her, how letting go helped kickstart her career, the growth of her field and the integration of the body into therapy, how she overcame the academic patriarchy, how she keeps her work separate from her personal life, including an inside look at daily practices that keep her grounded and better able to serve her clients. Susan came into my life during a critical transition, and I'm so excited to share her story with you. So without further ado, here's episode three. So for sure, so... Yeah, the holidays are definitely we'll going to be a challenging yeah, time. Yeah, they're going to be definitely challenging. So anyway, it's but it's okay. So far, so good. How good. about you? You must be good. busy. Yeah, everything's everything's going good. We've been good. working hard to try and transition online and uh, just keep keep the pace, I think, is the biggest thing. And yeah, hopefully totally. everybody goes into, I mean, physical activity and uh, mental health, they, they go hand in hand too. So exactly, yeah. We're really hoping that we can help people people stay grounded. I think during this period and there's a ton of uncertainty and hopefully we can come out of it stronger in January. Yeah. I feel the same. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, I appreciate you taking, I appreciate you taking the time. I thought uh, I'm excited. Me me too. Um, We always have such great conversations and we do. uh, Absolutely. We have a a cool relationship because um, I met you as a therapist and a psychologist originally. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. Our relationship has grown and you've been, you've Mm -hmm. been a really big, uh, really strong pillar I think in my life and through my development it's kind of like that grounding grounding outside voice especially Mm -hmm. growing up you know crazy family stuff and (laughs) exactly (laughs) we all have that yeah Yeah. and so it's nice having that kind of um I guess objective opinion Mm -hmm. sometimes or a lot of the time I'll just have something that I've been kind of working through or thinking about and I kind of have it written out in my head and then I come to you and we usually just talk about it and it's a it's a relationship that I share with you that I'm, I'm super grateful for, and so I thought Thank it'd be you. I thought it'd be cool by starting out by sharing. I haven't told very many people about the experience that I had that kind of led mm-hmm. me towards. Interesting. You, I thought I thought it'd be a cool opportunity to share that. Um, five or six years ago, uh, I was I was in a really really good job. Uh, I was extremely mm-hmm. stable coming out of school, um, but I got to a point where I was it was kind of indecision and complacency, and I was waking up every day going to a job that I didn't like anymore that I didn't really find true, true fulfillment or purpose in. And on my way to work, I actually struck two people with my vehicle. Mm-hmm. And uh, thankfully, they're both, they're both okay. But I remember um, being thrown in the back of a police car just as a, a holding period yes. and contemplating, like, is this, is this how I wanted my life to go? Like, if this was the last step in my life, would I be happy? And I realized that I wasn't mm-hmm. fulfilled and I wasn't happy. And I don't think I truly understood the effects of PTSD at the time um, yeah. or emotional trauma. It wasn't something that I had delved into in my own life. And I actually had a family member uh, connect me with you. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the focus of your practice. And it just, it's people come into, somebody actually told me once that people come into our lives for a reason, a season yeah. or a lifetime. And it was definitely a timing thing. Are you coming? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But yeah. I feel like we've developed a relationship where it's definitely a lifetime relationship. I'm, I'm, I have mm-hmm. so much admiration for, for you and what you do and the things Likewise. that you've been able to support me and thank you and support, mm-hmm. uh, support me and through my growth. So that's how I got connected with you and we've maintained this relationship. I never realized, yeah. especially as a, as a male, I never realized how 
taboo, I guess it is to speak about seeing a psychologist. And mm -hmm. I guess it's that it's traditional true. kind of masculine, masculine mm -hmm. archetype where we don't yeah. like to talk about our emotions, but it's something that I share with other people because I'm, I'm super grateful mm -hmm. and it's, it's done so much for me as I've kind of navigated my way through the early, early portion of my life. So that's how I, I, I met you. So um, why don't we talk a little bit about your experiences kind of, um, why, sure. don't we, why don't we speak? I mean, I already know how you feel about me and, and now mm -hmm. obviously you know how I feel about you too. Um, mm -hmm. So why don't we talk about some of, you, you can either start with, I guess, like the second half of your life or the first half of your life, whichever you see is fit. Well, the first half was, um, you know, I'm a child of the, I'm a baby boomer. So, you know, lots of uh, pretty classic family dynamics, lots of, um, my, we, we did move a lot as a child. So that was one of the things that impacted me a lot. And, and I hated it at the time, but I recognize now how much I learned from each you know, upheaval in my life. I, I got it that I could actually handle change. So I didn't know that at the time, but uh, it was a good thing overall. But yeah, there was a lot of emphasis on success, you know, being the best you could be and, uh, you know, reaching for that brass ring all the time and getting the very best marks and being the best athlete and being the most popular person. And, you know, all those things were, all those balls were in the air. And so up until about grade six, I managed to keep all of those things going, but <laughs> junior high was, uh, I was in, a, I was in a, a program for honors and it was like, focus on like I'd always been the smartest person in my class and all of a sudden I was with all these geniuses <laughs> it was quite threatening so I, I just worked my butt off I remember for those three years and uh, and then you know worked at trying to be a good athlete but the social stuff was like I was kind of nerdy so that was, that was a bit of a blow to the ego and then high school was you know started to kind of smooth out a bit and then but my 20s were tough. I, I found them very, you know, again, I was always trying to strive, strive, strive and be the best. And finally, at one point, I just, that was it. I was done with all of that, you know, success stuff and just found me. So that was kind of what led me to finding myself again. So, yeah. And then after my 30s, um, things started to actually settle. And each decade, I find, just gets better. That's the thing I really, I keep telling people when they say, oh, I'm going to be 40 or I'm going to be 50. <laughs> fabulous it just yeah. gets better <laughs> we had a moment so, last yeah. week we had a moment yeah. last week where we were talking about age and and i had this moment i turned 29 in may and i was like i can't believe i turned 29 in may yeah. and then but reflecting on it i was like it's a good thing that i'm i'm not necessarily recognizing my age because mm -hmm. it's just a number it doesn't really it doesn't really yeah, say it, it truly people. is and you know you, you hear that but it's not really until you all of a sudden you sort of sit with it and you go yeah it's you know it's true there is a wisdom or a sort of at some point it all kind of starts to come together and you, you know it's just to me it's just awesome it's been really good and then of course you know having kids and watching them grow and you know and, and going through the everyday middle-aged struggles that we all go through and uh, well not all but I have gone through and you know just knowing that I trust that I can I'm going to get through them so I would have to say that things have gone well and one of the things that you know I know you ask about career path at some point but I you know that's to me for us in the growing up in my time we had it made we just pointed to a job and it was ours yeah. you know I, I it was so you know I look back I look at you know what kinds of hoops you guys have to go through now even to get into grad school yeah. oh my god I would never have gotten into grad school now <laughs> There's no way. Yeah. <laughs> My marks would have been good, but you have to be so much more, right? You have to be this this complete person before you're 25, and that, that blows me away. <laughs> because especially so. reflecting on me, it's I feel like I 
I only, I only, I guess the turning point for me was at 25. Um, the, the accident definitely mm-hmm. acted as a catalyst for everything, yes. but I, we know so little before we're 25 and maybe it's, it's a true. generational thing too, but it's hard to make lifetime decisions mm-hmm. at a time where we haven't even really figured out the internal stuff. Well, and now we know the brain is not fully wired until we're 25. So, yeah. I mean, to me, that was wonderful. That was a fabulous piece of science because it put my life into perspective. Like, yeah. oh, okay, I was making some dumb mistakes and there was a reason for it. <laughs> but I, at the time when I when that research first came out, I was teaching study skills at SAID. And I had, you know, most of my, my students were in their late teens, early 20s kind of thing. And so I would, you know, I would use that very interesting piece of, of research to sort of say, you know, you guys, you know, you're start, you're just laying the pattern right now. You're not locked in stone here. You've got, your brain is still growing and expanding and lots of possibilities here for you. So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty what was, what was it in your twenties? Was there, and, and feel free, I mean, if, you, if you're not comfortable yeah. sharing, that's okay oh, too, no, but what was it in your twenties that was kind of that, that, that light bulb light switch moment where you realized that, you know, I guess it's switching from this, um, striving for for greatness mm-hmm. and you know be your best like that kind of mentality and behavior that was built as a child what was the break in your 20s well i had a lot i mean you know the the big that we we in the 20s certainly in my time maybe still now as well there was all these shoulds like you should you know you should have your graduate degree by this age and you should have your career established by this age and you should here's a piece be married by this date. <laughs> so i was going along doing ticking all those boxes in fact i was even engaged um and to one of my fellow grad students and you know a week before the wedding we called it off and like you know and at the time i just i, I don't i don't think i even it didn't, didn't even register to me what a huge decision that was <laughs> it was just like i don't think i want to do this so let's not do this yeah. <laughs> you know it was like and then, you know, in, in a year or two later, when I sort of recognized the magnitude and the optics of it as well, I sort of went, ooh, I don't know if, you know, I felt kind of like an idiot. But <laughs> at that point, life just kept kind of giving me all kinds of gifts. And I kept being very grateful to receive them. And the biggest one was, you know, a chance to move back to Calgary and work at SAITE, where I did for, you know, 25 years essentially um but it was sort of in that in the process of that and I realized I probably was about 28 29 and I had had a series of really unhappy relationships and I finally said I'm not I'm just going to stop trying to control this I I just have to wait and see and at that point then things just started to get a lot easier I wasn't trying to orchestrate my life it was just like a it was just letting it happen and if I was on my own that was okay and if you know, I was, you know, struggling with some other, what seemingly minicult, minuscule problem that was okay too, you know, so. That's really cool because I, I mean, you and I have never really chatted about, I guess, your experience with it. And it's so cool that you're sharing with me because that's almost identical to what happened to me where it was really? when I finally, yeah, it was like when mm-hmm. I finally, oh, well, or, yeah. there were there were two things really. The first one was uh, questioning and redefining what I, what I thought romance and love were. Mm-hmm. And love is kind of this word that's extremely difficult to define anyways, but specifically romance and what I thought romance mm-hmm. and a romantic life or a romantic relationship would be. And the other piece was letting it go instead of chasing yeah. it and looking for it all the time. It allowed me to just be. And then mm-hmm. lo and behold, three or four months later, I met, I met the woman that I've been with for the last year and a half, almost two years. Yeah. Now. And it's really interesting. And, and about the same age too. It happened yeah, when I was 20, time, 27. Huh? It's really, it's yeah, really interesting. It is, it's an interesting time. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, if there was one decade, I would not 
go back to, it would be my twenties. Really? I, I, you know, it was, I mean, I, I had, I mean, I was, as I said, I was blessed. I had great success. I had crazy success in my twenties. Like I was the youngest one in my grad school class by probably six or seven years. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So, I mean, and that was terrifying. I almost quit grad school actually uh, my first week. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. I looked around and I saw all these people who had way more experience. Like I had no experience. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I had no, I had no idea I was going to become a psychologist. I wanted to be a career counselor. And so this course had a focus on vocational counseling. And I thought, well, that would be cool. And, you know, I could work at a, you know, as a headhunter or something like that. Or, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about being a psychologist. And then on our first day of class, my professor said, and when, the, when this is all done, you can all apply to become psychologists. And I went, whoa, really? I, that wasn't even in the books. So then the following week, we started doing these micro counseling skills where you're starting to really practice it. And I, I also had a tremendous fear at that time of speaking in public and being on display. And that was what we had to do was we had to pair up with another person and pretend that we were the counselor or the or the client and then we did it we were taped and all of our classmates were watching us and I just I called my mom and I said I can't do this there's no way I can do this and my mom is a, a super supportive woman and always said years ago and my mom said to me you're going to get in there and you're going to do this <laughs> it's like she I've never seen my mom push back like that and she said you're going to get in there you're going to do this and she said here's what you're going to do you're going to play yourself just go in there and be a totally freaked out student I said, oh, I knew that. <laughs> so I did. So I went in and I, and the poor woman who was playing the, the counselor was gobsmacked because yeah. I was, because it was real. I was playing myself and I was yeah. talking about how insecure I felt and I didn't belong here and I was younger than everybody and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And afterwards, the head of the counseling program at, at uh, U of A turned to me and this is how this is speaks to kind of the levels of, of uh, patriarchy in those days he looks at me and he says well susan um instead of empathizing about what i just spewed my guts about he said what we'll do is we'll get you working with children oh can God. you believe that, that so unbelievable unbelievable so yeah so because clearly i wasn't adult enough to be able so so essentially as a result of that I, my, most of my first year of, of grad school was doing child psychology and working with kids, which I have no regrets for because when I started working with trauma clients, many of whom dissociate to child states, I have tremendous play therapy tools. <laughs> so That's so I interesting. Can, yeah, it was super interesting. But I remember at the time I was so out of it, I, I didn't even know to be insulted. Except that several of them, well, several, most of my classmates gathered around me and all came up and said, wow, that was awesome what you did. And, you know, we all feel the same. You're just the only one that's being real here. And I'm, just, I'm thinking, oh, wow, I did something right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I put my first, then I wrote my first paper and I got the highest mark in the class. So then I realized, okay, I can do this. Yeah. Ball keeps <laughs> rolling. This. Yeah. And then, it, yeah, as it turned out, I just was very fortunate. I, the head of counseling was not a mentor, but I yeah. did develop a number of wonderful people who took me under their wing and really saw that I had something important to, to offer to the profession. So. I want to, I want to talk about a couple of things that you mentioned. I think the first one was kind of feeling outside your comfort zone mm -hmm. you know that you didn't really you didn't really belong but another thing that you had mentioned earlier was saying that 
things have changed right now for, I mean, me at 28 versus you at 28 and your experiences where mm-hmm. you could kind of just shoot for anything and then you, you'd score. Yeah. It's not, it's not the same now. It's I mean, not. even you spoke to the patriarchy, I think is a perfect example of how, mm-hmm. I mean, somebody saying that a, a male, um, I guess, authority figure mm-hmm. in that, in that would saying that would not, that would not fly. Oh, it would not fly anymore. now. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't have flown back then either. But, oh, but we were, this was 1977. Okay. Yeah, we were in the thick of it. <laughs> yeah. So how do you think, no, what, no. how do you think it's, how do you think it's changed? Like, what are the differences that you see from yourself in your 28, in your 20s, mm-hmm. I guess, versus my experience, just because you know me so well, my experiences in my 20s, what are some of the things that have changed and how have they changed? Well, I think the, po- the good things that have changed is that people are much more aware of who they are now. There's much more of a, you know, of a message to, to explore yourself and be who you are and not fit into somebody else's mold of what they think you should be. That still exists, of course, but um, it's still, I mean, I think, fortunately, the consciousness movement has, you know, has really rolled since the 80s kind of thing. Yeah. And people are, you know, you know, children are being raised with conscious parents now yeah it's an extra it's fabulous so i mean the next generation is going to be just awesome but yeah so for you you're a conscious human being and you're going to be bringing that consciousness into your childbearing if you decide you're going to have kids someday you know so it's an amazing that's an that's an extraordinary development right there our parents aren't wounded like you know my parents were wounded from you know from the war and from the depression and Mm. you know and from um you know, immigrating from, from other countries, you know, so, you know, they were carrying a lot of that wound. Um, so, you know, that's each generation, I think, starts to clear a little bit of that with people doing, starting to do their work. But I mean, the other, but the reality is, I mean, economically things were open in Calgary was booming in the sixties you know, and seventies and eighties mm-hmm. up until 83, when the national energy policy came through in Calgary, it was, and which for me, I benefited tremendously from because I worked in post-secondary, yeah. but, uh, but for, you know, most of my generation, we could, there was no really any excuse. We could pretty well be whatever we wanted to be as long as we had the, the marks to do it. And there wasn't yeah. financial kinds of, like we didn't have to pay $5,000 a semester to go to school, you know, in, in front of a Zoom, yeah. <laughs> Zoom thing to go to school. I was so insulting. So my tuition, my full first year of tuition at U of A in 1973 was $450. Oh, man. And then I went to Carlton. I went in second year, I went to Carlton because I thought I was going to take journalism. I lasted two weeks in that. But um, that was another big piece for me, I guess, was kind of realizing, oh, my God, this is the wrong cookie jar for me. And what am I going to do? Um, But that was $750 in tuition. And that was a huge, my parents, like, forked out an extra 300 bucks a year which was a lot of money (laughs) plus I had to pay for you know accommodation and airfare and all that sort of stuff so I remember thinking I better make this good (laughs) 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 but again luckily there were lots of there was lots of opportunities so but you guys don't have the same it's more competitive for those opportunities for sure Um, and I think you know I think technology is a plus but I think it's also um I think it's a more tricky thing, like, because, for example, even just writing a paper, you go on Google and you're inundated with information. You know, for us, we would have to go into microfiche and there would be, you know, maybe six sources. And you know, yeah. I know, so, you know, I just think I would, I don't think I would even know how to be a student now. There's just, it's so complex. And I think our, the um, balancing we, all those things. And the, the way we measure it and the way we, the, the things that we value nowadays, mm-hmm. I think are, 
they've changed along the technology, for example, and it changes the way that we're then evaluated. And it also changes the way that we make decisions. Yes. So one of the things that, I mean, the other thing that you touched on is, is you said you went into journalism and it wasn't the right cookie jar. Mm-hmm. How did you, how did you find the right cookie jar? And once you found it in psychology, what, what was it? In psychology? <laughs> It was fluke, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I had taken a first-year psychology course in my first year at U of A, um, hated the first class, like it was awful. And then Mm. my second class was an introduction to women in psychology, so feminism, and I loved it. And that, but you know, I didn't certainly didn't see myself as a psychologist. Um, I also took history. I loved my history class. I did really well in that. But I'd always wanted, journalism had always been on the table for me. That was what I had always wanted to do. And then I got into my first year at Carleton. And the first assignment we had was to go up to the hill and randomly interview somebody. I was in Ottawa. And I just went, I can't do that. Like, that's not me. Uh, And I, you know, and then I, and I also met a couple of true people who have become amazing journalists. They, They were in my class. And I just, I looked and I thought, I don't have, like, I used to write, I used to write articles about solitude and, you know, this is what I did in, in you know, like <laughs> spiritual woo-woo stuff, right? Yeah. I had no interest in politics. I knew nothing about economics, yeah. like all the things that this program was focused on in journalism. So I got out of that and psychology was the easiest thing to transfer into. And at least the courses interested me. So I did, a, I did psychology and I did a religious study minor um, when I was there because I was very interested in spirituality. And, uh, you know, that was I thought that was pretty cool. And I did history and, you know, kind of all worked together. And then I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do with this? Um, so I, you know, started flipping through catalogs because in those days you could do a three year degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked through uh, I looked through all these catalogs and I just I wanted to come back to Alberta and I noticed that both U of C and U of A had counseling psychology master's degrees with both of them offered vocational counseling I thought well that would be really cool you know I'm interested I could do all those little magic tests that tell you what you should be with your life mm-hmm. and do with your life I thought, oh I can do that that would be awesome so I applied I got into both schools and then I decided screw this I'm going to go travel for a year so I went and ended up in Europe and I ended up in Israel on a kibbutz for, for many months. That was a huge turning point in my life. And I met some amazing people from all over the world and realized, yeah, I guess, you know, this is, uh, we'll see where it goes. So I went back to Calgary and back, ended up at U of A back in Edmonton and uh, less is history, I guess. But uh, I didn't expect that to be my career path. It was a kind of fluke. And I said that I didn't expect it to become a psychologist because I thought I, so I did my very first practicum at Alberta Vocational Center because it had vocational in it. And I thought that meant I would do career counseling. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Alberta Vocational Center in Edmonton was in the famous Boyle Street area. So I had to, well, it's the street, it's where the street people live in Edmonton. Okay. Okay. And back in the seventies, it was a scary, it still is probably, I haven't been there for a long time, but it was a scary place. Mm -hmm. So I remember going to work and um, my first clients were um, Aboriginal women. And I had never in my life, I mean, I grew up in Mayfair. (laughs) (laughs) I had never in my life spoken to a native person ever. Wow. Never. So I'm sitting in this room with this immense woman named Augustine and she, I had to take my sessions and she just said, I'm not going to say a word as long as that's on. So I turned off the tape machine and then we had a really interesting conversation. And it was, it was the first time, as I said, I just, I, I, I didn't have any tools. I just had to be me. 
And we clicked and she said, oh, I guess I'll come back and see you again. <laughs> but she would never let me tape. So my supervisor had no way of, of being able to tell whether or not I was doing anything properly or not. Yeah. Uh, and then I, uh, my other first client was a woman named Dorothy and she was my age and had three children, also indigenous. <laughs> and again, I knew I was 22 and she had three yeah. kids. So, I mean, I, do you think I had anything in common with her? No, I didn't have anything life-wise in common, but I did have heart connection and I was able to just kind of be with her with that. And it, you know, my, so I was able to tape her sessions and my supervisor just, he said, well, for somebody who doesn't know what the hell she's doing, he says, you're doing a pretty darn good job. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, those ladies, uh, all the people I saw there who were about as different from me as could be and had, horrific traumas in their lives which I didn't know squat about what to do with that all I knew how to do was listen and reflect and do you know be with them and that was that was what helped me to move forward and then my my supervisor at the time also said if you're going to be doing this for a living you have to know what it's like to be on the other chair so I had to I chose to and I was delighted every practicum day I would go in an hour earlier and he would do a counseling session with me as the client it was invaluable oh my yeah, god it was phenomenal. absolutely invaluable so i got to work on my fear and my you know all of the stuff that i had blurted out in my original micro counseling skills class <laughs> i got to actually work on that stuff and uh, you know and start to really you know get what it felt like to be in the other chair and started to really think wow this counseling stuff is pretty awesome right so i all of a sudden i really got what it did it's frightening to me how many psychologists have not sat in the other chair and that was something it's a, that you and it's i a terrifying thing yeah it is and it's it's funny because i experienced the same thing in my in my role right now i was like i've never mm -hmm. had this done to me and it's like it's completely irresponsible for me to be administering something that i've never had done to myself yeah. before so how, how would you describe your practice because i know you talked about you know heart centering and listening and reflecting but I yeah. mean, you've been doing this since I think you uh, you've been you've had your own private practice since '94. Yes, and then I was at SAIT prior to that in the counseling department. Okay. Um, so I started. I, well, I started at Nate. My first real job was at Nate in '79 okay. uh, on a on a maternity leave kind of thing, and then I uh, ended up um, getting transferring. That was all part of the government system back in those days, and I transferred to SAIT, which is home. Calgary was home, so I was glad to get back. Um, and then the council there, and I was given a lot of opportunities there. I got a chance to develop a lot of programs. I was the supervisor of counseling eventually. So I got really hung up in a lot of the leadership stuff. And then eventually, um, SAIT went through what all post-secondaries did, a series of, of uh, cutbacks and releasing staff. And so well, I was on maternity with my second child, and my husband also worked at SAIT. So I decided, well, I'll take... Um, I'll take a package. And it was great. They offered me a year and a half salary, which at that time I was at the top of the pay scale. So it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I got to stay home with my kids for a bit, but then I decided to get the private practice going. So 94 was when that sort of all started. And then, yeah, so it's a lot of years. It's over 40 years. I've been doing this. How yeah. did you, that's amazing. It's scary. Like yeah. I, I'm only 28. I've only been alive 28 years. I couldn't imagine doing something yeah. for, for 40. So, and it's so cool that you just, by, by luck, I guess. Uh, luck a lot of it, yeah. A lot of opportunity and luck and, uh, yeah, just being in the right place at the right time, for sure, I think. Um, but, you know, it's been an amazing career, and I could not have asked for anything 
more perfect for me in that sense, because it's given me a chance to a do my own work. You know, that's, that's awesome. I learned and, and the, the research and the learning is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the kind of career where, you know, wisdom and age really works in your favor. So, yeah. you know, the more you learn, the more you can, the deeper you can go with people, I think. And, and trusting that I learned to trust myself that I can go pretty darn deep with people. Yeah. Um, and that's been a huge gift right there. So, yeah. You can go into so the I, yeah. knowing that you can come out of it. Well, and that's, yeah, absolutely. And knowing I, you know, I don't get sucked under. Because mm-hmm. um, I, of course, that's a huge question as well. You know, don't you get depressed or doesn't it bother you hearing people's, <laughs> we're, we're a really weird breed, <laughs> <laughs> frankly. <laughs> It's quite exciting, <laughs> when, yeah. you know. I mean, when you, I mean, it's a strange thing, but uh, you know, the the stuff that's really, um, really challenging and really tough is the stuff that is the most gratifying in many ways to work with. Um, you know, when people come in and they kind of say, "I just want, oh, so I want to work on my self esteem," and I kind of go, "Oh God." <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so loaded like whoa where do we go with that you know yeah so but if somebody comes in and has been you know in a you know in a horrific accident or something bad has happened like this is clear there's this trauma experience that i've gone through or i've had this experience where most of my life is blank that you know that's okay there's you know that's that's what i do best i think so so i mean not not to knock the other stuff it's just it's uh, you know or you know it's just it's it's really broad and so it, it's to me it's always easier when someone comes in with something very specific because yeah. I, I, that's where i know exactly where to go yeah. you know i don't have to dance around and sort of you know figure out okay where do we go with this right. so you, you describe your practice as more of a holistic practice oh absolutely yeah. yeah i was one of the there were a handful of us that were involved in integrative body psychotherapy back in the you know late 80s early 90s um, and that was life-changing for me when people were actually starting to bring the body into counseling. Um, so I was lucky in, in grad school, I had a professor who was really weird. Everybody tried to avoid him, but he, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed him. I thought he was really interesting and I guess I knew he had some gifts, but he would, um, he did a lot of body, like, um, he was doing meditation and mindfulness and, um, t- body tracking and, uh, lots of really interesting things back in this. Cause he was a, he was a classic seventies, let it all hang out kind of therapist. Yeah. Right? And, uh, so I learned a tremendous amount from him about how important the body was and how important it is to listen to your instincts and not just grab every fancy, you know, cognitive tool out there. And so then when I was introduced to integrative body psychotherapy, it was like, okay, well, this is, I knew the breath was key. I was already running, um, running groups for students when I was at SAID, because I knew how important the exercise component was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then when body focused work and mindfulness became more mainstream, that was just a perfect fit for my practice. And, But for a time, there was only a couple of us, really, there was maybe 20 of us in the city who were doing any kind of body work. And how, have you, how have you seen it develop over time? As I was watching a documentary, it was called mm-hmm. uh, Sun. Um, I actually can't think if it was just called Sunseed or not. Essentially what it was, it started in like the late 50s, early 60s and talked about the spiritual movement through the 60s. It went through mm-hmm. all of the gurus from like all around the world. Wow. It, uh, Ramdas was what appealed to mm-hmm. me in that. But watching how it developed over the last, I guess, 60 years now, 
it, it was it was really cool to see. So so when you started in the eighties, kind of where was that movement at, and how have you seen it progress over the last 30, 30 years? I guess forty years. Wow. Well, it was it was certainly um, it was certainly instrumental in the in the early days of my training. It was kind, of, but it was considered kind of out there. And like this, Doctor Cozy, who was my professor at at U of A, I was warned by other professors to stay away from him. Wow. Because the stuff he was doing was so weird. Um, and, you know, I was told, basically, I was told by somebody who I really respected at the time that following that trail was going to get me into trouble. Because um, you just never, ever bring the body. You don't bring touch. You don't bring anything into, mm -hmm. into the counseling relationship. You keep, you know, really clear. And that just intuitively felt wrong for me. So, you know, for fast forward 20 years later, well, you know, it's becoming more acceptable. Like in the, in the 90s, after I was, you know, well established in my integrative body psychotherapy training, um, I was at a conference, my professional association conference, and mentioned this to another, again, another person I really respect. And they said, don't tell anybody you're doing that kind of work. Right. Like, don't, don't, you should not be advertising that. And I just kind of went, whoa, like, yeah, but my one of my teachers at the time had said, in you know the next 10, 15 years, to not bring the body into therapy will be unethical. That yeah. was the stance that they took. And mm -hmm. of course, now you know even the cognitive behaviorists are you know mindfulness for cognitive with cognitive behavioral therapy flavors. They're all and everyone's acknowledging that you cannot do trauma therapy without accessing the body. Um, or the beginnings of the emotional component to it. So, yeah, so it's been, it, it, now it's, it's be, you know, it's accepted. It's, you know, in fact, there are, I don't know how many different types of body-focused therapy that are out there now. Can't keep up with them all. You know, every day I hear of a new one. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. interesting. What's that yeah. <laughs> But, you know, some of the really key ones that have, have evolved over the years and are, you know, these are the people who show up in all these big webinars, you know, with kind of the, the, the new gurus of psychotherapy are a good portion of them are body focused psychotherapists. Yeah. So, I, I would agree with that. The majority of the, in that kind of movement, because I do find that that movement's definitely gained, gained a little bit of steam mm -hmm. with the uh, younger generations. I think it's harder for the older generations to, to adapt to it all, but it, it's very much body mind, body focused. There's very, there's very yeah, little yeah. stuff that I listen to that is just mind or just body. Mm -hmm. There's an understanding that there's these uh, two way streets and these pathways between both of them and they can exactly. be used as tools individually and collectively but there needs to be that collective kind of whole uh, i guess holistic integration approach. essentially yeah yeah that's exactly yeah that's exactly it so yeah so it's been very exciting to see it come together and be accepted really cool. and you were you were part of it so like so so early on so it's crazy to me to hear that in the in the early nineties that people were saying like, no, like, don't, oh, don't you dare bring this stuff in. It's really interesting. Cause I mean, I was born in 92 and to think, you know, that was 25 mm -hmm. years ago. It's yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about it's, it's, yeah, I'm. Yeah, we. I mean, we. You get labeled as you know doing that weirdo stuff, or you know that's really you know kooky stuff, or yeah. you know, and and you know now again <laughs> everyone's. Trying, well, I mean, there are still a lot of people who who stick, do primarily talk therapy and cognitive therapy, and I have great respect for that as well. I think that that's a super important tool um, to bring to the process, and for some people, that's the only way in. 
Yeah. So I, you know, you, you go where you go. I know if I'm sitting with somebody who I know is going to benefit more from cognitive work, I will attempt it. But if it looks like they really need a good CBT therapist, I'm going to refer them to somebody who specializes in that. Because mm-hmm. to me, it, there's an art to that as well. It's, uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot more to it than just reading a book. So, which I used to say, actually, I used to think, oh, anybody can do CBT, just pick up David Byrne's book and it'll tell you how to do it. But, yeah. you know, I have, a, I have, that was quite ignorant on my part as well. So I now recognize that there's a lot of incredible, um, you know, gifts in being able to get through to somebody on a cognitive level as well. So, so how much do you think, I mean, you spoke a little bit to intuition and then you also just talked about, um, gifts to get into somebody uh, cognitive level, but I also think it's a gift to be able to get into somebody at a body level. How mm-hmm. much of what you do do you think is nature and how much do you think is nurture? That's a good question. Um, certainly the, from a nurturing side of things, I have had to, you know, I've been so appreciative of the learning that's been made available about the brain, about, um, you know, the developments in, um, you know, how, why some of our therapies work. And some of them don't. So, I mean, I, I don't think I'd be anywhere without the nurture part, the part that's really given me tools, if you will. But I think there is, um, I think there is also a nature perspective as, that's key to really being, to, well, certainly in terms of trauma work, I think that there is, there's something inside that gives you whatever it is to go to, go to those dark places and hang mm-hmm. out there and not get sucked in. Mm-hmm. But to be able to feel so that the other person can feel that you're there for them, even when no one else has been there for them. Yeah. Um, to me, that's there's an art to that. And I've had the privilege of uh, supervising a couple of extraordinary younger therapists who have who have got it. And, you know, that's, you know, I, I sit with them and I just see how they they just naturally know where to go when they're in a session. And that's why I know it's, there's a nature to it as well. I mean, you can learn it, but. If you've got it already, it's just, you know, yeah. it just, you just, you just land, you, you could, you land consistently and you know, when you don't land, that's the other really important piece. When you screw up, yeah. you got to know you screwed up. Yeah. Like you got to know, whoa, we're, I'm missing something here. And again, yeah. if you don't know that you're doing damage potentially, right? That's really important because so many people, the reason they come in to see you, in my experience is because they don't feel seen and heard. Yeah. So if you're not seeing and hearing that, if you're energetically not there for them, um, they're, you're wounding them. Yeah. And that's the, I think that that's the nature part. I don't think, uh, I think that's, um, if you haven't worked through that wound yourself, yeah. you're not going to be able to be there with it. So, uh, so, so it's a huge part of this is being absolutely aware and having done your own work and continuing mm-hmm. to do your own work. As it's uh, you know you're you're we're always growing and we're always being touched in different ways by the people we sit with. So with the because the nature the nature side of it it's kind of just is like like you said you either you either have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. But then there's the whole nurturing part where you know you can develop skills and have experience. Yeah, absolutely. Do you? It sounds it sounds like at least from what you're saying it seems like there's a large part of your personal experiences combined with your professional experiences that kind of mm-hmm. flow flow into your practice. Yeah, for sure. So is yeah. it something, is it something that, you know, cause I mean, you talked about uh, fear as that 20 year old, you talked about mm-hmm. self-trust, 
was it was it really a snowball effect where these two things are intertwined? Because I think um, work-life balance is a really common common mm -hmm. topic right now. So do you think it's kind of these two personal and professional experiences that are intertwined? Do you see it as like a bigger picture where it's like these are just experiences that we're having, and if you can use them as that, that nurture part of, as a, as a part of your practice, then you do. How do you? What's your what's your view on it? Well, I think um, fear and anxiety are you know we all have those and especially now they're, they're big. Um, so, you know, I guess my, my philosophy or whatever is to accept that I, I just work without those parts of myself with acceptance and, and, um, and compassion. Um, and when I find myself in a situation where I don't know what to do, I have to be able to say, I don't know what to do here or, hold on, I need a moment because I'm starting to get activated here too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that recognizing that we have those experiences in the past when I was mm -hmm. younger, I just felt ashamed of having those experiences. Um, and I felt like there was something, you know, that's why, that's why I wanted to drop out of grad school because I, yeah. I was afraid I was going to cry. I was yeah. afraid that I was going to appear like I wasn't smart and yeah. I wasn't with it. Um, and that's what my mom said to me. She said, no, that's what you are. Go out there and be who you are. Mm -hmm. And if they don't like it and it's not good, then yeah, then you can quit because <laughs> it's not a good place for you. But, yeah. you know, but I, so that's what I did. And, uh, you know, then I, you know, I, you know, I've had a number of experiences in my life where I've had to really you know, face looking like an idiot. Um, and, and I, and I have, and that's okay. You know, I mean, that's, I'm still here. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> struck down dead. No. You know? And, uh, you know, yeah, you make mistakes all your life. You make mistakes. What uh, makes you smart enough to be able to recognize, whoa, I've made a mistake. You got to own it and keep going. Right. And so those fears um, for young people, for people going into the profession of psychology right now, oh my mm -hmm. God, <laughs> they get laid with all of this stuff, these fear. Like they, it's a fear based acceptance welcome to psychology and if you do this if you do this if you do this and if you do this you're out of here mm -hmm. <laughs> um so these young psychologists that i and they're not all that young but most of them i sit with are absolutely terrified they're going to make a mistake and they're going to yeah. get sued yeah and i just say to them, no that's you got to just you, you can yeah you can keep it safe and you never learn anything and you're no one's going to come to you because you're you know you're you're not going to be able to reach and go with them where they need you to go. Or you can recognize that sometimes you're going to feel like you're walking on thin ice. Mm -hmm. um, that's why you've got colleagues, hopefully, that you can, can you know, speak with and get some, you know, some help with if you feel like you're really in a, in a tricky spot. But the minute you sit down with another person and you say, hi, what can I help you with? You have no idea what you're going to do. <laughs> you don't know what the storyline is. Yeah. Right? You go with, you know, it might look like it's going to be a really, oh, this will be really easy stuff to work with. It's stress, just stress management. And then you find out there's 15,000 layers to that stress management that are, yeah. you know, potentially a mind shaft. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a scary profession, but you don't, we don't need the thou shalts and thou shalt nots coming down yeah. on us. And that's what concerns me now is that, you know, young psychologists are feel, dealing with all this pressure to be perfect and they can't be, they're going to mess up. And I think fear, I think fear is just, it's kind of, I mean, we're even seeing it right now, how it plays into our society. Uh, we're very yeah. fear driven in general and it's a survival tactic. And I think you and I spoke about yeah. anxiety first, where it's like, I don't, 
I don't try and stuff my anxiety into a box. I try and better understand it and yeah, build a relationship with it because the avoidance is only going to get me so far. And then I'm probably going to be burnt out in front of somebody like you anyway. Exactly. So what are, what are some practices? Like what, what are practices that you, you have that, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you talked about, thankfully you had a supportive mom, or for example, mm-hmm. it was pushing you to just be yourself because it gave you yeah. permission. And then, but it also gave the people around you to see you for who you were. And that just kind of, you know, it works hand in hand too. So what are some practices that you have to, to keep you in that, you know, I guess that safe space, knowing that you always have a home internally mm-hmm. and, and that you can, you can be there and also help somebody externally. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, years and years and years ago, I got involved in brain gym and I became a brain gym instructor. Um, this is brain gym are a series of movements that help keep your mind and body balanced. Uh, I learned actually more from them about the brain than I did from anyone in psychology. They were, wow. it was extraordinary. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a licensed brain gym practitioner anymore, but I still use brain gym every day. And I do some movement balances to keep my mind body connection and gear before I, you know, go into a session. I usually do an affirmation in the morning. Um, I've got a big bag of affirmations. I pull one out and then I do a little brain gym balance around that just to keep, make sure that I'm really present and, and really there. Um, I usually try to meditate every day. Well, I do meditate every single day, mm-hmm. a couple times if I need to, but you know, I might take a two minute, three minute meditation break midday just to reconnect with myself. Um, I will do that in session with clients when I feel like they're starting to get active and I, and as a result, I can too. So I'll say, let's just take a break and do a little bit of balancing work here and we'll, we'll do something that will get us both, you know, more present. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at night I always do a gratitude. I have a gratitude journal and I usually write down at least four or five things that I'm grateful for, for the day. And, um, and I, that is, I know it sounds really hokey, but Oh my God, that's a life changer. That to me mm-hmm. is one of the main things. If everyone did that, we have a very different energy in this world um, I agree. because it really is uh, that it puts you to sleep with positivity in your head. And if you have, you know, even if you have to search and you just say, Oh, I'm just grateful for my breath mm-hmm. or the fact that, you know, I have a nice manicure or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, but you mm-hmm. need to invoke that sincere sense of gratitude in your body. And yeah. it's a game changer. It integrates the whole brain body. And I think people sleep better when they go to bed with gratitude. And yeah. it's uh, it's a huge huge change for me that was the big thing for me was getting involved in that movement and then on the on the flip side if you go to bed angry you almost always wake up angry and that was something that i learned and i always i I learned that so i know i i really try you know things happen and you know you can be i can be upset and all that stuff and making sure that i have that reset before i go to bed because that's an opportunity for my body to rest and if it's all worked out and my nervous system is spiked and you know mentally i'm just not in great shape then i'm going to wake up that way and I always find that when I, when I have that kind of refresh uh, right before I go to bed, it's, it's the same thing. What does your yeah. meditation practice look like? Cause you said it was only oh, about two to three minutes. Yeah. Well, it depends. I do headspace. Um, I've been okay. doing that for, I think I'm on my, almost my 2500th day. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. When I find something I like, I stick with it. And, yeah. uh, and I, what I liked about headspace, I had never been able to sustain a meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, I couldn't, I just, I'm like so many other people would say, I just can't meditate. And then um, one of my colleagues told me about Headspace and the first 10 days, it's called take 10. And I thought, well, I can do 10, I can do 10 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. So I did and I felt great. And then I thought, well, let's, 
might as well subscribe to this. And then I went into take 15 and then I did take 20. And next thing you know, I'm meditating for like half an hour a day and I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. Um, so I just kept doing that. Now I'm, you know, I consistently do, I always do at least 10 minutes a day and first thing in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. And I often do a meditation just before bed. Interesting. Well. Depends. Yeah. I just, that just started that, but I, um, my husband finds that helpful because he struggles to get to sleep. So we started just putting, we call it Andy because that's it's Andy Prudhomme from yeah. Let's put Andy on. <laughs> and uh, we both conk out pretty fast. So it's amazing. Yeah, so it's and, and, but I, I love that practice. And then I do another, I, um, I have the insight timer on my phone. And so if I've got, you know, a few minutes between sessions, I'll throw on some meditation music or listen to one of their you know sort of i just kind of pick a random three minute meditation and listen to that interesting it's it's kind of fun yeah i never know who i'm gonna get so yeah what was that last one that you you said you said insight insight timer interesting yeah and so you can either you you can actually listen to you know canned meditations and music or they just have a timer where you you know set it for five minutes and then a nice little bone will come off at the end of five minutes. And I like that. Yeah, I, use Sam, I use Sam Harris's waking up and oh, cool. he's, his is uh, 10 minutes. You can, you can select 10 or 20 minutes, but I do find that we, I'll set up barriers for myself to meditation. So it's the, the mm-hmm. idea of being able to, I think mindfulness is kind of a daily practice and it can happen at any time. I think it's important yes. to set intention with it, but if you have those two or three minutes and you need it or I need it, then mm-hmm. I should sit and do it. So that insight timer, it seems like a really cool one where you could just set a time. It's and like, really cool. Yeah, yeah. You can do, it's just got so much, there's so much on there. I mean, there's, you know, there's, it's such a library of different kinds of meditations and, and then just the timer is great in itself. But I guess what headspace kind of hooked me because I do, it does keep track of the days and the consecutive days and, mm-hmm for me that that just works for me just to you know it becomes a routine and it's become a very important routine for me now so um so yeah so i use that all the time it's been good what so one of the things and i think i I know i've asked you this before and you said that it's usually a question that you get all the time anyways but how how do you separate your personal and your work life and how do you make sure that yeah especially self i mean self Maybe not necessarily, uh, I guess some of it would be self-esteem too, but I was going to say mm-hmm. self-worth, like you're very, you're mm-hmm. somebody who's very passionate about your practice. How do you make sure that mm-hmm. those cups stay full at the end of the day? Well, I, I do take breaks for myself during the day. Like I mm-hmm. don't book back to back to back clients. I usually book a half hour between sessions. Um, so that allows me to do two things. First of all, it allows me to get my notes done immediately after the session when everything's still fresh mm-hmm. uh, and gives me a chance to kind of connect dots if I need to or get ideas for future sessions. Um, and then it usually gives me a good five, 10 minutes um, just for myself. So I yeah. might do some more brain gym or I might just sit and read or I might do a quick little meditation. But it, so over the course of, you know, five sessions, I'm having basically five mini me times, yeah. um, you know, between, and I always take, I always try to take a lunch hour. So I, again, I'm lots of self-care over the course of the day. So by the end of my, so my last person who comes in, at, which is four o'clock, usually I'm not exhausted by then. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm really well rested. I'm really grounded and anchored and, you know, so I don't walk out of there feeling very often. Occasionally I do, if I have a lot of really heavy, heavy, heavy stuff, but most of the time I kind of thrive on that stuff. So it's rare that I would feel wiped at the end of the day. Um, But I do on days where I have a lot of really heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. I do some energetic clearing at the end of the day. So I use a little, um, 
tool from advanced integrative therapy, which is a chakra clearing exercise. And I just spend five, 10 minutes clearing any. Um, so I usually do a little body scan before I'm heading out the door. If I'm feeling really, uh, there's yeah. something there, then I clear for sure before I go. And then I walk home because I don't, I'm not driving. So that makes yeah. a huge, I'm very blessed. That's probably the, one of the main things I'm grateful for yeah. is that I can walk to and from work because that walk really clears me out. So by the time I get home, I'm usually pretty good to go. I'm, I've, I've aired out everything I've needed to air out. And I don't very often bring people home with me, but the odd situation, um, if I'm super concerned, I will, you know, I'll often make a point. And that's the nice thing about having email as opposed mm-hmm. to telephones, which we used to only have, yeah. um, is I can, if I'm worried about something, I can send them a quick little email and just say, I'm thinking of you or whatever. Yeah. Um, without opening up. Well, sometimes it does open up a lot, but I, I'm very, um, if somebody emails me a whole lot of stuff, yeah. they don't, they don't get a whole lot of stuff back. Yeah. That's another way I take care. I just, I'm not prepared to do counseling sessions through email on my yeah. own time. I don't think it's appropriate either. Um, no, but, but I, it's amazing. I, you know, yeah. Say, Thinking of you, hope all is well. And you get 18 paragraphs later. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Sorry. I'll get back to you tomorrow or I'll, we'll chat about this next time you come in. <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's fair as, um, it's a fine line between, you know, showing compassion for yourself and then showing compassion for others. But I think it's totally fair to take some of your work home with you because you are, you're human and yeah, you're passionate course. and you mm-hmm. care about what you do and you care about the people you, you work with. And that's, that's what makes you great. So I, mm-hmm. I don't think it, yeah, I think it's something that it's unfortunate, but if, I think having those practices and those barriers set up where, you know, sometimes yeah. you go through them, but you still have a little bit with you and, yeah. and that's okay too. Well, a big part of the integrated body psychotherapy training, which was a piece I had not received up until then, was about setting boundaries. And that's a big buzzword now. And in IBP, we are not just talking about the word boundary or the no, we are talking about our energy fields and how we literally connect with our energy fields and recognize what's ours and what's not. So it's a lot of inner work. And most of my clients, yourself included, I think have probably at some point done some boundary work with the string. Because to me, that's probably the most important thing I give people is the opportunity to feel their boundary in their body. Yeah. Um, so when I got that piece, and I didn't get that piece until a good 10, 11, 12 years into my career, mm-hmm. it was a life changer. Yeah. And I don't think I would have, my career would have lasted as long as it has had I not really gotten that piece. Um, because I really got it when I was taking other people's stuff on and feeling like I had to take care of them, do that agency to others versus what am I able to do in this moment that will be of help to somebody. So that was been a, that was a godsend for me. One of the biggest gifts I've ever received is, is under, is getting boundary in my body. Yeah. And that was, I remember that practice you did with me because, um, mm-hmm. It was, it was so interesting to have that visual. It's exactly, exactly how you described it. It's what I experienced, but it was mm-hmm. super beneficial to me. And it was such an impactful experience. I still think about it yeah. and I still yeah. remember it. And it was so, because it, it ties this, it ties so many of our senses together where there's this visual exactly. thing happening. And then it's also checking in with my body. So then there's visually something happening and then I'm paying attention. It's yeah, mm-hmm. it was unbelievable. So yeah, it, yeah it brings yeah. everything together. It's a it huge, really, huge piece. So really that to me is, uh, that was one of the greatest gifts I received. And I really try to share that with almost everybody I see. Uh, I don't think there's many of my clients who haven't gone through boundary work with me at some point. Uh, if they've done any kind of long-term work with me, because it's just um, it's just so important to know where you end and where someone else begins and to recognize what is balance between self and other. 
So when somebody sends me a 18 paragraph email, that's not balance. You know, that's a dump and I'm not yeah. going to take that. So yeah. what I, you know, I reply with three sentences or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's, I have to do that because if I take on an 18 paragraph email and try to respond to it on yeah. my time, I'm going to get resentful mm-hmm. and then there's no balance anymore. Right. So, so that's, I'm, so that's, that's how I, cause I think that's one thing in the old days, we just had telephones. Yeah. Right. So if you didn't check your voicemail, you didn't know somebody was there. Yeah. Now and voicemails, you know, voicemails time out. That's the other thing. Exactly. Exactly. But now, you know, I come home and there can be five emails from people for me. You know, most yeah. of them just want to set up appointments. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, that's business. So I'm okay with that. But you know, yeah. when I but it's you know, it's if people very few do this, but the occasional person who does want to invite a conversation through email outside of therapy hour time, no, they don't get that from me. So, and I do, so, and sadly, I do hear a lot of my colleagues, not in my office per se, but I've heard this from other therapists say, oh, how do you deal with all the emails that come home, come in, you know, when you're not at work? And I say, well, they wait until I get to work yeah. because that's, yeah, it's not, otherwise I will burn out, right? That was a huge thing that I started practicing with work too. I, and I remember it was actually the first time I did it was last year where I took mm-hmm. my work phone or my work email off my phone. Because when yeah. I'm at home, it's it's me time. And when I'm at work, exactly. it's work time. And I didn't have a good response from my from my colleagues. Yeah. So it's it's something that I don't think a lot of people have. And I think we're a lot of us are afraid to set those boundaries. But it's yeah, it's really important. We have a couple of minutes and there's there's two more questions that I wanted to, to make sure I got. Okay. So let's go. one of them was let's let let's start, I guess, with this. If if you had a, I guess you've already worked with students. I guess it's it's a combination. I was gonna I was gonna ask you if you could tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? But I actually want to flip it on its head because I think psychology is a field that um, it's growing, and, and there's so many different practices in it, and it's still recognized and registered. But if you could tell a younger psychologist one thing about you know their career and responsibility and boundaries and everything that mm-hmm. we've talked about today, what would it be? Oh, that's a tricky one. <laughs> Um, I guess I would basically tell them that it's, it, it, this is a good parent message that I often give myself. And I, I think it pertains here is it's not what you do, but who you are. That is so important. It's, it's who you bring. It's the, it's the, the being that you bring to your work as opposed to all the things you do. Um, I'm that I've had that lesson given to me so many times back from clients when, you know, I'll, I'll say, oh, yeah, we did that awesome piece with, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they go, oh, really? I don't remember that. Yeah. What I remember is you saying, are you yeah. just holding? Are you looking at me like that or whatever? It's not. So what I've learned is all these fancy interventions that I think are just mind blowing. And the client's going to go, wow, that was yeah. so cool. Yeah. Sometimes that happens. But most of the time they remember some you know, little, well, when you said this and I'm going, what the hell did I say? (laughs) But it's, you know, it's about, it's about my presence. That's typically been the most important thing. So that's the one thing I guess I would certainly say to young, younger or learning, you know, therapists is be who you are. Don't worry. You know, all the, the tricks and tools and stuff you'll learn. Those are easy to learn seriously, but being who you are is what's going to make the difference to being a you know being a success in this world so and That's in this amazing. profession and any other profession for that matter and what do you think over the next the other question was what do you think over the next month 
what's would you have any suggestions for for anybody who might might watch this or might listen to this as we move into i guess another semi quarantine shutdown sort of period mm-hmm. over the next month what would you if you had one message to send out to to those people what would you say um first of all that it's going to end yeah. uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that's super important to remember that so keep mm-hmm. your feet moving that's yes. you know if there's going to be temptations to just want to sit and stew in it but see if you can keep moving in some way whether that's by taking on some activity that you've maybe never done before or maybe making a big jigsaw puzzle and every day you put two or three pieces in i mean however you want to measure that movement is up to you maybe it's getting up and doing a meditation i don't know but um keep your feet moving that's really the key there's a wonderful story called the house of a thousand demons i don't know if i shared that with you ever why don't you share it's it's a learning uh, it's a it's a learning tool among buddhists apparently but these monks are having to go through the house of a thousand demons in order to get their final initiation completed and they're terrified so they're big eyes and they're going oh master master what could we possibly expect in the house of a thousand demons and the master says you'll expect your worst nightmare so if you're afraid of heights you're going to be on the top of the highest mountain oh master master how can we possibly get through the house of a thousand demons and the master says only one way keep your feet moving so that's to me for this time that's the key find a way to keep your feet moving even if you're even if it's just i can take i can take a full breath and right now the metaphor of the breath is key because that's of course that's what this horrible disease does right it is it kills our lungs so that breath just feeling the breath and just that to me is just one simple way of saying screw you covid i'm still breathing (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome Thank you so much, Susan. You know how grateful I am for you. Uh, pleasure. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And this was, it's been fun. was great. I find every conversation I learned something from you. And I'm gonna I'm gonna check out Brain Gym when we get off this call. Yeah, it's fun. I'll show it to you sometime. Awesome. Okay, you take care. You thank you so much. You too. Enjoy. Okay, thank, I'll talk thank to you. Soon. All right, everyone. That's all I have for you this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. And check back next week, same time, same place, where I'll welcome Jared Salikin onto the podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure to give me a follow. Much love.